0: Well, we've been uh, starting a series off on um, one of Jesus' sermons, a particular snapshot out of it, uh, where he invites us to enter in the narrow way. This uh, this is anchored to Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. If you want to put a bookmark in it, we'll be coming back to that again and again and again uh, over the next six weeks. Enter through the narrow gate, or five weeks now, I guess. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Last week, Pastor Sean started us off um, with just kind of a baseline uh, recognition that there are some implications in that first statement, that the narrow way and the narrow gate imply to us that this is a difficult way to go. If you heard someone call you up uh, to a mountaintop and said there's a narrow path to get you there, you would know intuitively that it was probably a difficult path to walk. And we're going to focus primarily on the path that Jesus calls us to walk on with him uh, through the course of this uh, series. But today I just wanted to briefly go over the other path. It's important enough to Jesus to talk to us a little bit about both paths and contrast them against each other. Uh, And we want to talk about that second one, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. But first let's begin in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this place to gather in peace. We thank you for a warm room uh, in the middle of winter, for a dry place, a safe place to call you Lord without fear of reprisal. We know that that's not the condition that every one of your children uh, are finding this morning. Some are having a hard time finding shelter. Some have to worship you in secret. Uh, for fear of being attacked for their faith, God. We pray that you would be with those who find themselves in far more difficult circumstances than we do this morning. And we pray that you would make us good stewards of the provision that we have, of the peace that we have, of the space that we have, that we would not waste these privileges, these blessings, Father God, that we would use them to become excellent disciples, excellent students of you uh, as you teach us in this place. Help us also, Lord, to remember that The greatest capacity you gave us uh, is to receive your love and your grace, uh, God, to respond to your invitation, to have a real and genuine relationship with us and with you. Help us not to reduce you, Lord, to a divine vending machine that we're just constantly trying to put the right quarters in and get the right thing out of, uh, Father God, to remember always that the invitation to be your children uh, is the great gift. It is the good news. In Jesus' name we pray these things. So I'm going to talk today a little bit about that broad path uh, and the implications of destruction and, and sin uh, and some things that are sometimes uncomfortable to reckon with. And I figured since we're going to talk a little bit about sin, I might start with just a confession uh, of my own. The word calls on us to confess our sins to one another, uh, to be real about our awkward moments in difficult places. And so I was thinking of a story a couple days ago that kind of represented an awkward uh, moment uh, in my journey. A few years ago, I was uh, visiting another church with some friends. Uh, And uh, their worship team was lively, uh, but they had a young man playing the drums, I would guess 13 or 14 years old. Uh, And as he started playing, I'd say within about 10 seconds of the first song, a few things became abundantly apparent to me. First, was the fact that he could not keep time to save his life. Secondly, he did not seem to notice this fact at all. And thirdly, I was wondering if someone had dared him to play as loudly as as humanly possible. (laughs) So this kid just starts ripping on the drums with no recognizable rhythm at all. And instead of settling into a nice worship session with the Lord, I found myself settling into just confession. I was so ashamed and convicted that my sense of praise was so shallow, so brittle, that all it took was a 13-year-old and a drum set to completely unmake my worship. It was just brutal. And I spent the whole set just confessing to the Lord, oh God, Forgive me that I have nothing more to offer than this and that this young man can just rob me of my praise. I don't know where my worshipful heart is, Lord, but it doesn't run all that deep. We have a, we have a staying in the, the vineyard. Everybody gets to play. And I was really struggling with that sentiment that morning. Man, I, I think some of us have to learn to play and then we get to play. But it was, a hard, it was a hard moment. Now, granted, that's a bit of a silly story. But it underscores, I think, a rather fundamental truth. It seems to be the case that in general, we prefer to engage in things that are pleasing to hear, that are nice to our ears. And we'd rather not spend too much time with things that are harsh sounding. I think this is as true true theologically as it is musically. There are few theological topics harsher on our ears and our hearts than that of sin. But I'm gonna do my best to argue today that not only should we confront this topic as part of the series, but that there is actually good news to be found in that confrontation. So in Matthew 7, even as Jesus calls us to the narrow road, he warns us that there is a wide gate and a broad road that leads to destruction. Just as Sean observed last Sunday about the intuitive implication of that narrow road as one that is difficult to travel, I think the broad road speaks to us of a place that is much, much easier to end up on, maybe even inadvertently. Jesus, as our good and faithful shepherd, calls these realities out for our well being, as well as a caution. Go this way, he says, but don't go that way. I realize as I say this that there is a temptation in life to prefer a view or an interpretation of Scripture that doesn't involve that nasty road and the implications of destruction that lie down it. Wouldn't it be nicer if instead in Matthew 7 it read, Narrow is the way that leads to salvation but it's really the only path there is, so don't worry about it. Or there are many ways, but they all end up going to the same gate, so it's all good. The it's all good message is popular in our day, and I think in truth it's always been popular. There's a general rule of thumb that I try very hard to follow, and that is try your very best not to get into an argument on social media. And for the most part, I have been successful in avoiding those arguments. But every once in a while, you encounter something and try as you might, you just cannot contain yourself. I'm sure you've each had that experience. Most of the time, I encounter these things on Twitter. And, and I, by the way, I'm resolved to just call it Twitter for, forever. I can't, I can't get my head around X. Most of the time, what ends up happening is I encounter something absolutely outrageous and then I start writing. And then I refine my essay down to whatever, the 280 characters that you can get. And then I redraft it, and I go through And about the sixth or seventh draft, I realize this is absurd. I'm not representing the kingdom well, and I just delete it, and I'm done. But I have to kind of go through the process. And Facebook kind of hits me the same way. But a few years ago, I was browsing through Facebook, trying to be more present in that place because people are there, and the Lord loves to be with people. And I ran across a post from one of my friends that posted what she believed to be, and I'm not going to hang this around the Hindu people, but she believed this to be, a Hindu proverb that sort of fits that it's all good spirit. So I'm going to read this to you now. And again, disclaimer, this is allegedly a Hindu proverb. I haven't done the research myself, but here's how it goes. There are hundreds of paths up the mountain, all leading to the same place. So it doesn't matter which path you take. The only person wasting their time is the one who runs around the mountain telling everyone else his or her path is wrong. So she posts this. This is a seminary student. And then asks all of her friends, what do you think about this? And just something just leapt out of my chest. I just could not abide that. What's interesting, though, is on the surface, this totally conforms to that sort of it's all good mentality. That's very pleasing to the ear, isn't it? There's all kinds of paths. But don't worry, they all lead to the same place. You're going to get there. Don't worry about who's taking which path. It's all going to end up in the right place. Now, this may shock you to hear, but I'm not, in fact, an avid mountaineer. I know that as you look at me in this moment, some of your first thoughts are, that's a fairly athletic looking man right there. I'm sure he climbs mountains every weekend for fun. Shocking, but true, I don't. I have, however, had a couple of experiences, and a couple of experiences climbing a mountain was more than enough to realize that there is nothing true about that statement. (laughs) Not only do not all the paths on a mountain lead up to the top, some of them lead off of cliffs Some of them lead into rock slides. Some of them lead into chasms and huge amounts of danger. So much so that in many places, as you climb a mountain trail, you're likely to run into a path like this, hazard trail closed, danger, boulders, death, doom, dismay. It's just, if you've spent any time at all on a mountain trail in America, you're likely to have reckoned with the fact that some of the paths lead around the mountain, some lead down the mountain, and some could really, really get you hurt. There's a, there's a warning sign up there. I ran across this one as well. I couldn't pick between the two, and I decided I had to put this one in two. That, that might be my favorite hazard sign I've ever seen in my life. That dude is fully upside down, already halfway down the mountain, going down to his doom. That's a really effective message. I don't think you need words. I think anybody from any culture would understand that, That cracks me up. But the idea is that every path on the mountain, uh, the idea that every path on the mountain is safe and leads to the top sounds nice, but it just isn't true. And it's not a good and loving thing to treat one another that way. There's a temptation, I think, to avoid the hard messages and the hard truths. But just ask yourself, just not in a theological sense, just general morality's sake. If you had been up a mountain before and you knew that there were some paths that led to danger, and you encountered some hikers who had never been there before, would you be doing them a kindness to just let them go wherever they were going to go and just bless them with nice sounding words? Oh, you'll get there. That all leads to the top. That's not a kind thing to do. And it certainly isn't a biblical thing. Thing to do. So, we don't want to be a community that favors the nice sounding untrue thing over the difficult truthful word. That's why today we're just going to spend a little bit of time reckoning with that broad path that we can so easily find ourselves on and the destruction that lies ahead of it. But again, I'm going to try and frame this my very best way in terms of good news because I think there is good news in reckoning with our sin. Jesus calls us to be aware of the path that leads to destruction. Be aware of the fact that it's far easier to end up on the path, on that path of destruction, than to stay on the narrow path, the good path, the righteous path that he's called us to. Now, So far, I don't know that I've succeeded in selling this as good news, this horrible, destructive, deathly path that we might end up stumbling onto. But I'm going to do my best here. Here we go. There's a, there's a temptation, I think, in the gospel to reduce the good news to its utilitarian form. What can Jesus do for me functionally? And indeed, it's good news that the Lord delivers us from our sins, delivers us unto eternal life. That's something he does for us. But I don't think that's the best part of the good news. The best part of the good news we read about earlier today in 2 Corinthians, that Jesus reconciles us to the Father. And I'm going to call an audible here and back up and just read this one more time. Because as I heard it being read, I thought that's, that's really important for us to hang on to. So again, out of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Note that the good news being proclaimed here is not the forgiveness of sins. It's the reconciliation of us unto God the Father through Christ. And that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Important for us to pay attention to, if we want to be disciples of our teacher Jesus, to note what work he has given us to do. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he was committed to and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf: be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, I think the greater part of the good news is that reconciliation unto a right relationship with our Father God. Jesus Christ draws us back to the one who loves us more than any other. And there is a profound blessing of perspective and context that comes with reckoning with our sin, that helps us better understand the one who is inviting us and their heart towards us. Perspective is a powerful thing. Have you ever been browsing YouTube and you start getting those recommendations for things that you might not go looking for on your own and before you know it, you've clicked through about five or six of those and you have no idea how you got where you are on YouTube? A few years ago, I got into this series and I just, I, truly, I'm not a person, I'm not a renegade. I'm not someone who loves breaking the law. Uh, and looks for every opportunity to shun the police or law and order. But I ended up on this trail of videos that were just nothing but people breaking the law. It started with, there's a name for this and I don't know what it is, but it started with people who love to hop on freight trains and just go for a ride around the country, which is not legal, but man does it look cool. These people who would just strap on a GoPro and then climb onto a moving train as it's zipping by and go hundreds of miles over the course of a day And then they'd figure out the routes and they'd know the trains stop here to refuel or whatever and they'd duck off before the police found them. Video after video after video. I don't know why that appealed to me so much but I found it absolutely remarkable. And then there were some other videos uh, of uh, people crawling through uh, basements and deserted buildings uh, and all kinds of uh, structures and things that you're not supposed to be inside of or climbing up on top of towers. There's a video I watched of a guy climbing up on the Eiffel Tower on his own. Definitely not allowed to do that. But I found it exhilarating. And as I clicked through these things, I ended up with uh, one particular video of a guy. There's a name for this sport. Call it out if you know it. Where you get one of these parachutes that's like a wing. It's not the circle kind. It's like a wing that lets you kind of steer where you're going. And if that's all you had, eventually gravity's going to win and you're going to hit the ground. But somebody a while ago had the great idea of strapping a giant propeller onto your back. And you basically turn yourself into a human airplane. There's a name for this. It's not paragliding. Is it Paragliding. paragliding? There you go. Thank you. So there's this video of a paraglider and he's just going through the desert and it's nice and serene and I have no idea where this is or what's going on, but then he takes a turn and suddenly it's very apparent where he's paragliding because one of the pyramids of Giza (laughs) comes into view. I don't know that you're allowed to paraglide over the pyramids under normal circumstances. That didn't seem to stop this guy and he's getting closer and closer and closer to the pyramid until finally he literally touches the top of it. He glides right across the top and kind of runs across the top stones and then keeps going. Now the video stops there, so I don't know what happens or where he lands or if he gets into trouble. But as I'm watching that, two thoughts occur to me. First of all, I wonder if he was supposed to be doing that, if he was allowed. And secondly, for some reason, the pyramids are nowhere near as impressive from the top as they are from the bottom. Now I submit this for your judgment, but here we go. Here's, this is not the actual video, but it's like it. This one was a promotional thing for Red Bull or something, and he was allowed to do this, but he did the exact same thing. So on the right, you've got somebody on a paraglider, Running across the top, and that doesn't—you can't even hardly tell that is a pyramid. It's just a stack of stones. But on the left, that's the perspective I'm used to seeing. You—you you can't tell me that left one isn't more impressive. It's the same pyramid. The pyramid didn't change. It's the exact same thing. But something about looking at the pyramid for what it is from the ground, I think, captures the just monumental awesomeness of these structures. Perspective is a powerful thing. On my drive home, I I live out in the hills in Jones Valley and I have to remind myself sometimes that the little one and a half lane road that goes out there is kind of treacherous. I've been driving it for eight years and so I could drive it blindfolded practically, but sometimes I invite people over and I have to remember that there are no lights on that road. There are 30 foot sheer drop-offs on either side and there are actually, you've all had a blind turn, but there are hills where you're blind vertically. Like you go up a hill and you cannot see the road in front of you. That's a pretty scary thing, but there are some amazing views on that little hilltop road. And one of them is just the valley of California out to the east, stretching towards Shingletown or Bernie Falls. Many of you, I'm sure, have driven out there. Many of you have been to Shingletown. Many of you have been out to Bernie Falls. But I tell you, there's no view more beautiful of that valley than out on a hilltop overlooking it from elevation. It's the same valley when you're in it. But something about driving through Shingletown is not nearly as impressive as sitting on a hill and overlooking California as it stretches out as far as the eye can see. Same value, valley, but the perspective is important. The perspective matters. So I'm looking at these two perspectives of a pyramid. Oh, I'm sorry, I went back through this. So perspective is a powerful thing. There's a parable, I think, that illustrates this point. And again, the idea here is, where can we find good news in confronting our sin? that isn't just about the salvation from the sin, but that can be found standing right in the midst of those low paces. There's a parable you're going to recognize right away. Um, I'd be actually interested to know as we read this, if there are any of you who haven't encountered this yet today. But as I was thinking about this message, I couldn't think of a, of a parable that illustrates this point better. You'll find it in Luke chapter 15. I don't expect you to read it up there, but I just want you to get settled in with the, kind of the size of this story. Uh, This is the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm going to read it to you now. And I want you, as I read, to think about the topic of sin and how sin is, is treated, transgressions, trespassing is treated in this story. So again, Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger got Together, all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered the entire inheritance in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that land and in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the same pods that he was feeding the pigs, but no one gave him anything to eat. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead but is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. Has anybody never heard that story before in the Bible? Okay, you'll hear it again and again. It is, okay, I'm glad. It's a good one. You're going to hear it again, I promise. It's one of my favorites, and it shows up in sermons. We look at that story from a number of different perspectives, often from reconciliation, uh, forgiveness, grace. Um, But it occurred to me for the first time. It's amazing how this can happen. I don't know how many times I've read that story. Sometimes you're reading the word, and the same story for the 10th, 20th time, and something new stands out to you. And that happened to me as I was reading this story. And then it has to do with how much of this story is to do with sin. Now, the beauty of this story, and I think many people react the same way, the beauty of this story is in the compassionate, forgiving, graceful heart of the Father. But how the story goes about telling us about that heart of the Father is interesting. Would you you guess how much of this story has to do with sin or iniquity or coming and going from that sinful place? I thought as an interesting experiment, I would pull out basically... All the verses that touched on or were adjacent to those sinful moments of the sun, and both of the sons have some bad moments there. Pull them all out and see what kind of story we're left with. Again, I don't expect you to read that, but just look at the size. So here it is if I pull out the sin. Like, that's pretty stunning, right? Like, 90% of that parable is a hard look at the sinfulness of the sons. But it is because we have a look at the sinfulness of the sun that we have a context We have a perspective from which to recognize and understand and appreciate just how much the Father loves his Son, how gracious he is towards him. I think perspective is an awesome and powerful thing. It seems to me that a parable like that is given to us to help us better understand what God is like. Jesus himself shares this story, and I don't think there's any mistake in that. It's important to know who this God is. The good news isn't good news at all if God's heart towards us isn't also good. One of my favorite questions to ask as I read the word, certainly as I follow Jesus around in his parables, is what is God like? And certainly, speaking of popular verses about sin, John 3.16, almost all of us, I'm sure, have heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life what's interesting to me is as popular as that verse is, the next verse is even more powerful and fits so well with it, but I almost never hear this quoted. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's an important second thought and certainly an important revelation of the heart of God. And John is full. John kind of stands apart from the four Gospels. He, he writes differently. He focuses on different things. Um, He's kind of his own thing. But one of the themes that John comes back to again and again and again is that of love, the loving character and heart of God. And John 10 gives us another passage about this that kind of reveals the heart of God. This is Jesus speaking. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So what's God like? Who is it whose heart is being revealed to us in the Word and in these moments of reckoning with the depth and the magnitude and the consequences of our sin? What is his disposition and desire for us? Is it damnation? Is God just looking to set us up to get us to admit that we've messed up so that he can strike us down? Is Jesus out to get you? No. No, he's not at all. In fact, he is for you. I want to take a moment here as we recognize the heart and the disposition of Jesus to remember that we are students of Jesus. We are following him down that narrow path, and we have work to do. He's teaching us to do work and to walk in his way just as he has walked towards us. There's an interesting dynamic in the creation story of this pattern of, Jesus, or, sorry, of God as he creates each day. He looks at what he's done, and he declares that it's good. He's done it well. All except for this moment when he creates humanity. And there's a moment when God looks upon his own creation, that Adam is there, and he decides that something is not good. I don't know if that's ever stood out to you. Which is a wild moment. God did it. Everything he's looking at, he has done. So it's wild for him to review it and then say there's something not great here. The first moment in creation narrative, when God declares that something is not good, is that Adam is alone in the world. And that's not good. So God responds to this thing by creating Eve. And with all of the other wondrous things that comes with Eve, human community comes with Eve. And it's no wonder, really, because we're made in God's image, and God exists in community. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but being a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God perpetually exists in community. God was in community before creation existed. So it's been my observation that anytime God gives us something... It's not just for us, because it's not good for us to be alone, and his purpose is not for us to be alone. When he gives us something, it's not only for our sake. When he answers our prayers, when he hands out provision, increases our faith or our patience, it's not just for our sake, so that we have an easier time of the day. When God speaks to the people in the world, oftentimes he speaks through a mediator. He works through us. He gives us a word for somebody else. When God responds with provision or a word, Oftentimes, he does so through his community. So then this deeper revelation of God's loving and patient heart towards us that we encounter if we will reckon with our sin and understand how far down we are as God reaches down to us, that's not just for our sake either. That's not to alleviate our pain and, and make us more comfortable. It's for the sake of others. The formation that takes place within us and the way that that changes our disposition towards our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors it's for them as well. There's an opportunity, once we've seen that demonstrated to us, to turn around and live that out towards others. There was a moment um, three years ago when one of my, by the way, I think I've gone this whole time without saying in seminary. So here's, if keep keeping track, here's the in seminary. In seminary, I got to know a number of amazing professors, and a few of them I got to know outside the context of class. Got to live some life with them, reckon with some hard moments with them. And my uh, New Testament and IBS professor, uh, when I first met him, um, his philosophy of life and leadership is to walk it out, not just talk about how we ought to be, but to walk it out with each other. And I think each of the professors on campus understand that their classrooms are full of people who hope as a vocation to be with, to stand with people in hard places. And so this, this professor, Dr. Donjil, um demonstrated this to us, embodied this to us by sharing some of the harder things of life with us. And When I met him, his wife was going through a terribly difficult time medically. Now, he didn't talk about this every class session, but sometimes he was having a hard day, and it was pretty clear. And so rather than hide that or be secretive about it, sometimes he would just share, I'm having a hard one. My wife took a bad turn. And I remember the classroom sometimes would gather around his desk, and we laid hands on him, and we'd pray for him, and we'd believe with him, and we'd proclaim healing with him. And in a few years' time, we grieved with him because his wife passed away. And I remember thinking the next semester when we didn't see him on campus, which made perfect sense. What a devastating loss. I've got to reach out to this man. I've got to say something if I'm going to be a friend to him. I've got to be a friend in a moment like this. But what can I say? I haven't been married. I don't know what that loss is like. So I can't say, I get it. I know what you're feeling. I understand, and I didn't want to go with a platitude. And there's always this pressure in a tragic moment like that to say something that will profoundly help a person. I think for the best of intentions, we want to be able to help. But what can you say to help when someone has had a loss like that? So days and weeks went by, and I couldn't think of what to say until finally I just had to get back to school. I had to get back to my 7,000 books to read, and I kind of parked the thought on a shelf. And then I ran into trouble. I have a pretty bad character flaw in certain circumstances to do with being tardy with things that I'm supposed to have done in a timely manner. And it has to do with shame and fear. The next time I remembered that I was supposed to reach out to my brother, three months had gone by. (laughs) And so now the problem wasn't I didn't know what to say. The problem was, oh my God, how would I face him? His wife just passed away and I've remained completely silent for three months. And so now, rather than putting it on the shelf until I could think of something clever to say, now I was actively running away from my fear and my shame because I had failed. I'd fallen down, I'd sinned. It felt that way in my heart. I had sinned against my brother. I hadn't been present. And I didn't come back to that thing until like two semesters had gone by and I think the Lord needed—I knew I needed a kick in the pants on this issue. I wasn't gonna approach reconciliation without help. So I'm walking down the hall one day and I literally stumble into Dr. Don Joel. And I'm just, I froze, I panicked. And I could, I could just, I, could, I was bracing myself. I was waiting for him to rebuke me or, man, Todd, it's been a while. What happened? Or something. I don't know. I, I had just really heavy weight in my heart. And finally, I just blurted out, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry I didn't say anything. I'm so sorry I wasn't there as a friend when this happened to you. I'm just so sorry, man. And then I just waited for, like, the cold stare or the, that's fine, him walking away. I confessed my sin there, and I deserved to be rebuked. But he didn't rebuke me. <laughs> Instead, he just unloaded grace and love on me, and his, his face softened and his voice softened, and he was compassionate. He said, Todd, I understand. What could you say? What can anyone say in light of such a loss? It's not a problem, brother. It's just fine. We're fine. I cannot overexpress to you the profound difference in my relationship with Dr. Donjal after having that experience. It's not that his love towards me changed. He loved me that way already. He was already that kind of brother to me. But having reckoned with the depths of my failure as his friend, I saw his love towards me differently in that moment. And and to this day, I have a deeper appreciation for how gracious a man, how loving a man he is. I think there is good news in reckoning with our sin. There's good news in having a hard look at that wide road that leads to destruction. As uncomfortable as sin can be, there is a blessing of perspective to be found in having a good hard look at the ways that we have fallen down before the Lord and remembering that even while we were in our sins, God loved us, that God reached out to us, that God extended his hand and his grace to us and called us home like the prodigal father. I think we understand that far better because of and in light of our sins. And so it's worthwhile as a community for us to be willing to face into that difficult reality, to remember that it's easy to fall back on that road because it is the easier road. Now again, as we're called into the work of the kingdom, we're going to have opportunities to be present with other people in their lives at the deepest and darkest places when they're reckoning with their sins, when they realize that they've hurt not just themselves but others. You're going to have opportunities when people have hurt you when they've transgressed against you, when they've betrayed you, when they've lied to you. And you have an opportunity to demonstrate God's love to them in that moment. And I promise you, you may have no idea how deep a change, how deep an impact your grace and your love and your forgiveness may have when someone is standing right in the deep depths of their sin and reckoning with it. For you to return love instead of wrath. For you not to condemn them or judge them or wish their destruction but to reach out your hand to them and to embrace them. There is a remarkable opportunity to be Christ in a moment like that. And I think that's a part of the call as we are students of Jesus, as he calls us to that narrow way, not only to reckon with our sin, but to be with one another as each of us reckon with our own sin, to call one another to accountability, gently, lovingly. My brother, my sister, you're drifting. I don't know if you've noticed, but you've ended up on the wide path that leads to destruction. It's time to come home. There's a blessing and a benefit there. Last, last example, there's a moment I can't remember. This is just off the top of my head. There's a moment in the Bible where Jesus is telling somebody a story. He asks them a question. He says, imagine that there's a money lender who lends 50 shekels to one person and 500 shekels to the other and soon discovers that neither can afford to pay him back. So he just forgives their debt. Which one is more grateful? And the person replies, well, the person who's forgiven the, the greater debt is more grateful. And Jesus says, you're right. That's, that's a part of the good news of reckoning with our sin. So we're going to focus in the, season, in the, in the series ahead on the narrow path, but I wanted to just take some time this Sunday uh, and call our attention to that broader path and the destruction that lies ahead and to remember that's not only a dreadful, terrible thing that oppresses us or that we should flinch towards, but there's a blessing to be found there too, that God calls us away from that, calls us back home, that he is for us in that way. So we're going to take communion now. This is something that we do each Sunday. There's a moment with Jesus and his disciples just before he was crucified for our sins when he has one final meal. And during that meal, he reaches for some bread and he reaches for some wine. And he calls his disciples to see him in those elements, to see the bread as a representation of his body, which would soon be broken for them and for us, and to see the the wine as a representation of his blood, which would be shed for our sake. Not for his sin, but for ours. And there are two powerful things going on in here. Obviously, the remembrance. To come together as a community around the table of the Lord and remember why we're here and who it is we're following and who stands with us in the difficult places calling us home. But also to welcome the Spirit of the Lord in a real way. The Spirit of God is present in a sacrament like communion. He's here with us in the room. And it's good as a common movement every Sunday to draw ourselves around that place and around his presence and partake together. So the way we do this is we'll each come forward, we'll come down the center rows, we'll take a cracker and dip it in the wine, and then keep it with you. We'll go back to our seats around the outer rows, and then once everybody in the family has their communion elements, we'll partake together. So come now to the Lord's table. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you looked upon us even in our worst moments, in our deepest sins, and you loved us even in that place. You loved us as deeply as anyone can. Your word says greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what you did for us, Lord, in your sacrifice for us. Help us to never lose sight of that, God, to never lose sight of how deeply we are loved, and help us to grow in that love and turn to the world around us, our brothers and sisters, when they're in their hard places, when they're reckoning with their sins, and love them well, just the same way that you have loved and forgiven us. And be glorified in that grace, Lord. Change lives in that grace and that love for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you as you go into the city. Um, May he meet you in your hard places uh, and remind you of his loving presence with you, that it never leaves, that there's nothing you can do to scare him away. There's nothing you can do to shock him. He already knows the worst of it. And in the worst of it, he reached out to you in love. And you cannot lose that because you didn't have to earn it. It's just a part of who he is. Do your very best this week to find the people who need that grace and that love in your life and show it to them in recognition of how well you've been loved. Go in peace.